0: Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. In this episode, we'll be talking with Paul Trudeau, who is the co-director of City Hope in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. City Hope is an organization that provides meals and a sense of community among one of the densest homeless populations in the country. Later in the episode, we're continuing our discussion with two NCBRT subject matter experts, Andrew Radiver and Ed Anderson, about strategies that law enforcement can take to efficiently assist the homeless population during the global pandemic of COVID-19. We want to thank Andrew, Ed, and Paul for sharing their expertise with us today. So in general, how are people thinking about COVID-19? How are they gathering information about it?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, A lot of their news comes through word of mouth. Um, And so sometimes they have accurate information, but a lot of times they don't. Um, And we're educating them in some ways and trying to dispel some false narratives that are out on the street. Um We're often having a conversation of when, when will this be over, when will this be over? Um, we're also handing out masks too we've We've had some great donations of um, masks to give out um, but the, there's an interdependency with people in the tenderloin, and they they live in close proximity to everyone, so there's a lot of people sheltering in place even if they're they're or sh- sheltering um, together in different ways, um, whether it's in a large hotel space with a lot of people, e- even people on the street, you know, they're they're sharing tents and things like that. Um, they, when we open our doors, there's a line down the block now. The numbers have increased tremendously. The need for a, a hot, nutritious meal is something that they're valuing even more because I I think some of them really know that they need to stay healthy. Um, But it's very difficult to have people do social distancing because what ends up happening is if you ask people to spread out six feet apart, that line gets even longer and inevitably somebody jumps the line and jumps in front of somebody. So a lot of what we're doing um, when we're out there and talking to people is is reassuring them that you know, there's somebody that cares about them That one day we'll co- go back to normal and be singing together and watching movies together. And wouldn't that be great? Um, just having those normal conversations of of social activity and and then educating people I've, I've I heard very early on, you know, people thought it was gonna end by Easter um, and they were announcing it to everyone, and I was just tamping that down, like, I don't think that's going to happen, you know, like, I think we got to think differently about this, and so having those conversations in line from somebody who's uh, providing for them a meal is, that means that's somebody they trust, right, so that's, that's one of the important things that I think we are able to do is um, give voice to to them about something that's crucial for their health from somebody that they know and that they know loves them and cares for them and they trust them.
0: So um, you're in contact with people who run shelters or food banks and things like that. How have their operations changed to, um, you know, just be as safe as possible, avoid spreading COVID, um, you know, to people who work there and to um, people they serve. Um, could you speak a little bit to that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's changing every week in some ways. Um, we feed a lot of people from one specific l- large shelter that is a block away and um, they, have people in bunk beds you know so h- how do you stop a virus when you are not sleeping six feet apart but what do you do not give people a place to sleep it's it's a very challenging time in that way i think what they've tried to do they've they've played with some of the number or the hours that they let people come in and out um and we we've seen that directly affect um, when we're feeding people, because then people have to rush back to the shelter at a certain time or they'll lose their bed. Um, so to answer your question, I don't think there has been like a tried and true like everybody knows what to do kind of moment. Um, and some of the some of the um nonprofits have had to pull back. Um, especially those who depend on staff that are elderly and or volunteers that are elderly. One of the reasons why we're doing more groceries deliveries is because the food bank had a partner with a church with that had elderly volunteers. They just couldn't, they weren't gonna risk it anymore. So um, that's, I think that's been an, it's been a very challenging time on how to make the best decision for those you're serving. While also taking care of your organization, um, the other thing is there's just a lot, a lot of anxiety from nonprofits um, in in regards to fundraising. There's a ton of galas that happen in the springtime, and so a lot of nonprofits, including myself, you you raise a significant amount of money in the springtime, and so you know you you see people trying to care for the people that they're you, you know designed to care for while at the same time having to stop doing the service to figure out how to cre- create funding <laughs> with your hands you know, tied behind your back. So that's some of what I've, I've seen. There's also just a really great um, camaraderie where people are willing to help each other more. There's less ego out there. Um, if, if one organization can't do something, they're calling up another organization and vice versa. I didn't really talk too much about the city. Like right now, the issue, one of the issues here is like well, two issues. Like encampments were, was a homelessness was a crisis before this. So now we're dealing with a crisis on top of a crisis. Right. So there's a lot of political. There was a lot of political pressure to get the homeless off the street in some some fashion. Now, with the crisis, all the motels and hotels are empty, and there's political pressure to put them in a motel, which I think from a lay person's perspective, it sounds like, oh, well, just do that. It's so much more complicated. Um, You could could give 80 rooms to somebody in the motel next to City Hope, and we could even feed them, which is great. But who's going to be the security guard? Who's going to make sure that they are sheltering and it's in the actual quarantine space um i think i think that's the challenge that san francisco is trying to deal with and there's one side of the table that's saying just do it you got to do this and the other side's like saying yeah but and um yeah i i i personally am like well who you give the room to is just as important you have to have really good social workers, Um, they're vital. You have to have good um, security because there will be somebody that violates the safety. And so how do you keep the space safe from the virus? Um, It's just, everything is got, you know, three dimensions to it, it's complicated. I, I don't know, what I'm reading on the streets is like, one day there's extreme gratitude and we're coming together, and the, it seems like the next day we're falling apart. <laughs> it's like a swing. Um, I had a, there was a guy that took a, like a, it was almost like a crowbar, um, and he was about to smash my car right outside City Hope. And the people in the line, like, stopped him. But then he just went over to the Prius next to mine and just smashed in the windshield. We all just watched in horror mm-hmm. and then left. You know, and then the guy breaking into the house. Like, this is this. There's something in the air when people are just like. And the I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that like things are boarded up. There's a high degree of um, misinformation, anxiety, tension. There's services that are shutting down. So it's so vital that we do care for our neighbors and build trust with them. Right now. Or you know the, the amount of chaos can really accelerate. The, I've seen really masterful uh, de-escalation happen,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that, that's a that's a real art form to know how to talk to someone to you know you're separating people often without them even knowing that they're they're walking with you some other direction. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of it, yeah, it's de-escalating some kind of of really hot moment between two people that are are um, might be going to blows or you know mm-hmm. are yelling at each other. I've seen you know really talented law enforcement officers come through, and they know the people by name. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's what's so important. When when an officer r- rolls out of the car and just says, "Hey, Bobby." let's talk you know yeah it's so important that officers are are known as people
0: mm-hmm. and
1: that officers know the people right yeah uh, when that happens you know you're when you them say somebody's name you just know you it's gonna be okay um that yeah. they're they're very versed in the neighborhood
0: Thank you to Paul for joining us on the podcast today to talk about his important work with the homeless population. Next, we'll continue our conversation with Andrew and Ed about resources available to the homeless population. You know, most states in the country are under a shelter at home or shelter in place order right now. How do these types of orders apply to the homeless population, if at all?
2: They're, uh, they're equal to any other population. A uh, lot of our homeless camps are just basically small neighborhoods, essentially. Um, just not as, as, as traditional as you and I might expect. Um, so again, those recommendations would be the same as any other neighborhood or community. Try not to gather in groups of larger than 10. Try to keep your social distancing. Um, if you think you're sick, then try to isolate and or seek out medical attention. Um, so there's really no differences on on who we're sending the message out to. The message is the same for everybody, every citizen of the, of the state and of the country, I would say.
3: As I was mentioning before, Ashley, some jurisdictions have um, sought to go to the extent of, of buying up entire hotels, uh, paying the room rates, if you will, for uh, homeless populations to shelter into uh, during the pandemic. Another way to look at it is that if we ask people to it actually sounds kind of crass shelter in place in a tent but it, it can be done so rather than just forcing them into a tent and say, saying stay there giving them the space in a plot of land so oftentimes these encampments homeless encampments might be grouped together because there's private property or state property or whatever on all sides so they're kind of forced into one area if there is a larger area that can be safe accessible, um clean they can set up washing stations whatever and provide that distancing between each encampment, that might solve your problem right there. But again, it, it's really dependent on the local jurisdiction. Not all agencies will have the funding or the land space to do that. So again, uh, it's, it's a case by case basis.
0: Absolutely. I've um, In my research before this uh, episode, I um, was reading about this, uh, this topic and, what different solutions are being presented. And um, one solution that was floated in one community was a safe parking zone. So areas where people can park, if they, if they live in vehicles, uh, for example, they can legally park their cars overnight and to sleep and things like that. So um, I think that getting creative about that is definitely the way to go um, with meeting people where they are and, you know, not creating new problems um, by encouraging people to split up or something like that Um, or split up you know encampments and things like that so um, that's great so uh, shelters are often a huge resource for the homeless population um, and with social distance being such a huge part of preventing the spread of the the virus these shelters um, might they be um, a place where, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question, um, if a member of the homeless community staying in these shelters becomes ill, um, is there a place for them to go to quarantine to avoid spreading um, the virus, you know, throughout the shelter?
2: Uh, That's a great question, Ashley. Actually, Um, I I can think of a a particular circumstance here, and I'm actually pleased to to tell you about this. Uh, In in my area, we actually, the Army came in and set up uh, a 2,000 bed facility, emergent facility. uh, Pretty incredible uh, what they did. And they had zero patients. So the, the whole idea was that was going to be the overflow for the hospitals or for the folks that had no place to go to seek medical care and or remain in isolation but thankfully it was uh, it it came about the same time as social distancing protocols were put into place and we just haven't seen the numbers Um, I'm happy to say that so far knocking on wood um, those models have not been as as accurate for fatalities and for infections because people acted early they acted with common sense and reasonableness and and started self-isolation so they do exist there are places out there but they just haven't been filled, thankfully, because people, I believe, are, are using common sense and they're following the protocols.
3: There have been other cases where it's gone, just as you uh, described, Ashley, where a shelter has been opened and uh, populations that were residing there uh, became uh, symptomatic. And then they tracked other people who were sheltering there and they also became symptomatic. I believe one case uh, in um Central California had up to 45 cases within the shelter. So it's definitely a balancing act. And uh, if, if we are doing that, uh, healthcare um, needs to be part of the sheltering process there. Probably not so much for our first responder aspect, but uh, if that is taking place, PPEs are being used, medical checks are being done, temperature checks as we discussed earlier, uh, taking place daily, if not uh, more than that, to make sure that we're using our best practices to keep Uh, occupants of the shelter as healthy as possible.
0: Sorry about that. Um, So we touched a little bit on um, how jurisdictions can provide resources to the homeless population where they're at. So, um, you know, things like, uh, as Andrew mentioned, the, the cell phone charging stations, places where people can get news. So what other Sorts of things can jurisdictions do to supp- uh, supply the homeless population with these resources, um, you know, that don't require them to maybe enter uh, a shelter if they don't want to, or if shelters are um, are you know packed and not able to take in any more people. What sorts of things can um, jurisdictions supply within the encampments and? Um, the larger groups of um, members of this population.
3: So social services or community-based organizations that uh, had already been providing meals or healthcare, uh, these types of things can still do that in a safe manner and still be in compliance with the health directives. Rather than doing it face-to-face though, they just increase the distance. And I'll use the example of meal service rather than having an individual come inside a, a structure and receive uh, a cafeteria-style meals where food's put on a tray and they move down the line. Perhaps that food is uh, put all into one box, like a, like a box lunch, and then given to the individual and they pick it up and then they move on and eat it at a different location. The loss, of course, is the communal dining, but what we see is there is an increase in social distancing and um, a greater... Uh, aerial response rather than being packed together. There's, there's greater air distance individuals and you meet uh safe, safety standards that way.
2: You know, one caveat to that would be the, how you gonna deliver those goods and services. Um, essentially you're going to have to seek them out. And again, that, that goes right back full circle to, we have to be able to get out there and make these connections with these people on a one-to-one basis. There's no central clearinghouse that's going to be able to, we can, we can, use to get these goods and services out there, we, we have to make sure that we're checking on folks. And I think we would agree that everybody is vulnerable to the COVID-19 virus, but some populations might be more vulnerable because of their lack of information, um, perhaps lack of even a, a stable you know, shelter over their head at, at night. Um, so we, we actually owe it to these members of our community as well to get out there and make those connections and, and provide those services.
0: All right, so I'm gonna move into my wrapping up questions here. Um, So on past episodes, we've emphasized the importance of having a plan in place for uh, various response concerns. So what are some things that jurisdictions should consider when making a response plan concerning um, COVID-19 among the homeless population in their area just to sort of tie it all together?
2: Well, I'd say the first thing uh, would be don't wing it. (laughs) If you don't have the answers, uh, make sure you reach out to your your regional stakeholders, your partners, even outside the region. Look look at somebody else's circumstances and what their protocols and procedures are before you just go ahead and put your your ink on paper and uh, make those policies yourself. Um, and try to involve everybody. Before you decide to set those protocols, try to involve every stakeholder possible. Um, to, and I mean, really think outside the box and see what's available to us. Should we bring somebody in from public transportation on this? Should we be talking to somebody perhaps you know, in the fire department's HAZMAT branch on this? Um, bring everybody into the into the, the planning process and you'll definitely have a better product at the end of the day. Um, Rad, do you wanna to add to that?
3: Yeah, certainly, and I agree with you. Ed. That that task force concept that he's talking about, bringing in an individual from various agencies to work together on a common problem, is is really a best practice. That's good. And again, I'd like to emphasize that if we don't have a plan in place now or start making a plan now, we will end up dealing with problems later on, and and probably not on our terms. We'll probably be more reactive rather than proactive. But the other thing i like to add into what Ed was saying here with that that task force concept is that we should track what is going on. And I don't necessarily mean in terms of surveillance and and crime suppression like that. We should determine if we're being effective or not. Are we actually seeing problems in homeless campments or not? Are we seeing illness or not? Are we including um, pre-hospital care reports for ambulance response? What kind of illness are they seeing? or are they not seeing it? So we can be responsive to trends that are developing, either we scale up or scale back. And actually what that does is not only we're meeting the needs of the community, but we're also, we can use that data to keep our first responders safe.
0: Absolutely. So uh, before I move into our last question, um, I just want to open up if there's anything that I didn't ask or didn't touch on in this um, interview that's sort of on your mind or in your notes or something like that that you wanted to also share, um, we definitely want to, want to hear that. So um, is there anything anything else that's on your mind before we get into this last one?
1: Hmm. I'm
3: going to offer an acronym, of course, in this era of pandemic and NIMS and ICS and all the whole bit. I'd like to ask our listening audience to stop, S-T-O-P, or to stop, think, observe, and plan. As I've been kind of saying along here all the way along, if we don't have a plan up front, we're going to end up dealing with the consequences perhaps later on. So before you dismount your engine, your ambulance, get out of your patrol car, Stop for a second, think about what is going on, what's happening in front of you. Observe the people you're about to contact or provide medical care to. What are you seeing there? Are you seeing signs of illness, hostility, crisis, whatever it may be? But plan to deal with that. STOP, stop, think, observe, plan, rather than rushing in and getting perhaps caught off guard and then in in 14 days, hopefully not, but exposing yourselves to um, an unnecessary risk.
0: do you have anything to add or did we get all your thoughts in here
2: I think we got everything's covered I think that's a great idea right I love the acronym and I feel better having an acronym
0: <laughs> they are helpful um okay so um last thing I want to talk about um so we're constantly inundated with um a lot of information um on COVID-19 that can make us fearful and um anxious, negative feelings. So um, I think it's easy to focus on what's going wrong. So from my perspective, this uh, pandemic has renewed a new sense of community, albeit from a distance and a little bit different kind of community that maybe we're uh, used to. So I'd love for us to end this call with um, each of you sharing something that good that you've seen come out of this chaotic time, whether it be related to our topic today or not, just something you've noticed.
2: Well, I could certainly put that in two categories. Uh, in, in my experience, uh, one would be professionally. I, I've seen professional relationships that were foggy that have been completely honed, and watching people actually come together universally and work with their respective talents and agencies—that that's been uh, it's been amazing to watch that happen personally. Um, and on a personal level, the same things happened. Um, you know, I've talked to folks in my own neighborhood, of course, at the social distances that we. Uh, are abiding by and they're reporting that they're actually checking on people uh, folks that have never even spoken to the neighbor two doors down now are on a name, first name basis and they're constantly checking on each other to, to see if anybody needs anything if everybody's doing okay so those professional relationships have been reinforced and new ones made they're going to help us in the future for our responses but also on a social level a personal level people are becoming a little bit more real and that they're checking on their human beings and checking on their neighbors and making sure everybody's doing okay and it we have to admit the slowdown in the the lifestyle. You know, the spending a little bit more time with with family and thinking about what's important to us has been a really good reset for a lot of folks in life. So that's that's one one of the good things that come out of this.
3: I hate to go down the acronym road again, but uh, I'm going to give you DSW or Disaster Service Worker the state of California has a disaster service worker program. So when you fill out your job application, they slide in this little piece of paper right under what you're filling out, your payroll stub and everything. And you signed it. And it says that in times of a declared disaster, you are a disaster service worker one and two, because of that, we can lawfully hold you over your shift, change your job description and have you do something else in order to meet, uh, meet the disaster need. Well, and my 30 plus years of experience, I've never actually seen that activated until now. And in this, in the last couple of weeks, I haven't had a chance to work with professionally with librarians, uh, outreach workers, public uh, works, uh, broom sweepers, whatever you may be, but they are all handing out public pr- or um, PPEs, personal protective equipment to responders, to hospitals, and like that from a central clearing area, what we call a pod or a point of distribution. They didn't sign up for that. They weren't trained in that, but they are really stepping up and are are way organized and are are very impressive to watch. And so this activation of this disaster service worker, this hidden duty, if you will, seeing people step up to the need and serving the community, even if it's not their job description, they're doing it anyway, is impressive and it makes me want to be a better responder.
0: Thank you to Andrew, Ed, and Paul for coming on the podcast and sharing some useful strategies for responding to vulnerable populations during this global pandemic. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next week.